Hey, welcome to Talk Alchemy. I'm your host, Tyler. It's good to have you here listening today. Thank you so much for taking some time to uh, spend with me. So today, you know, I had something I wanted to talk to you about. It's uh, an interesting idea I want to present to you in this episode. We're kind of going, you know, now that you have a, a little bit of a feel, I hope, with the last episode, if, you, if you've if uh, you watched it, and if you haven't, go check it out. Uh, episode two of Talk Alchemy was the transcendental object, and that episode was all about Terence's novelty theory idea and how it relates to our current situation in the world and his whole kind of metaphysics of what was happening about having, you know, a transcendental hyperdimensional object that was calling time toward it. Yeah, so there's another idea that I think is just as trippy, and it's one that's a little bit more well-known, but it's kind of the average person I've noticed doesn't know about it, and it touches a lot of places in life and in modern day philosophy all the way it actually stretches all the way back to the greeks up until now uh touching things like a little bit of things like Tao. the Tao is not necessarily based off of it but um definitely christianity and some other traditions have been uh heavily vested within it the stoics were invested in it and uh hey if you know anything about a little bit of philosophy and what i might be talking about or what i'm hinting at I'm hinting at the concept of the logos. The logos. It's a Greek word that essentially means logic or the reason for logic. It's a really interesting idea. Actually, I think it's my pet favorite philosophical idea. I've actually, uh, I recently heard about this maybe, hmm, I want to say about two years ago was when I actually first heard the term properly, the Logos, and I started to learn about it. Um, I found it, I had heard it in Plato's work of Platonism. Plato spoke about it. It goes actually, it dates back actually to even before Heraclitus, you know, pre-Socratic thinkers. But I believe Heraclitus is the one who wrote down his first ideas, concrete ideas about this concept of what the logic in the universe was. So essentially, you know, I've heard a lot of people actually, they'll, when you, when I bring up the term logos to them, I present them this idea. They say, oh yeah, in college, I learned about logos, pathos, and ethos. And it was, that is kind of like, you know, a triangulation, a Greek triangulation of thought of different ways to perceive the world through emotions, feelings, logic, reason, credibility, and ethics. And Logos was, like I said, the logic and reason, part of that whole triangle that usually people encounter in philosophy when they hear this term Logos out of uh, Greek teachings. So, you know, it's actually a really interesting concept that originated back there in ancient Greece. Um, and like I said, it makes its way through Heraclitus, uh, Plato, Aristotle. Like I said, the Stoics adopted this philosophy as well. And then it became a pretty big thing inside of Judaism, where individuals like Philo of Alexandria, a Hellenized Jew, would talk about this concept of the Logos. And then after him, it was adopted into Christianity and Islam. Uh, most notably, I would say, in Christianity is really where it gets its biggest legs. And until the modern day, probably until the 20th century, is uh, where it kind of remains paralyzing philosophy for a really long time due to its implications in that religion. And in many ways, it, it kind of paved the way for why Christianity was such a dominant religion and why it was vested in such a... Uh, uh, an acceptable tone being that it came from, you know, these original Greek philosophies. Uh, you had St. John the Divine talking about the concept of the Logos. You had uh, Justin Martyr talking about the Logos. Um, and, you know, the, the early church fathers began to adopt this philosophy and it kind of built the entirety of Christianity. I think uh, one of the more interesting things about this idea of Logos is how it interacts with Christianity because Christianity has been the dominant religion on the planet uh, for centuries, a number of centuries, over a thousand years spanning, almost 2,000 years now. It's been huge, especially after the Romans adopted it. And uh, it was exported to other places, to the New World, by uh, and to Asia, uh, Africa, by, you know, European settlers and colonists and, uh, you know, missions of that sort. So, it's interesting because then I've talked to a lot of Christians about this concept of Logos, and honestly, a lot of them have no idea what I'm talking about. Now, 
In Christianity specifically, the Logos is actually interpreted to be Jesus Christ. Christ himself was the incarnation of this logic of the universe, this uh, essentially the truth of the universe. Christianity surmises, and it kind of gains this idea from Platonism and Neoplatonism, and it borrows from people like Plato who would say that, uh, you know, there's this divine realm, this divine realm forms outside of our normal reality, outside of the universe, there exists a world of perfection where perfect shapes and forms and geometry and ideas are existing, and that this truth is pouring out into the world, like as though this perfect transcendent reality cast a shadow which is the physical world it's it's the material world and everything that exists within it and the fact that we have logic begins to permeate through us as the truth so the logos is understood to be something that is inherently objectively true about the universe pouring through in the form of logic and understanding and the application of that logic Heraclitus, uh, when he started talking about the Logos, he actually said that it was language itself. That the fact that we could create language and we could knit understanding together, the ideas of our mind could be transmuted and alchemized, and that we could... Uh, knit them together in a pattern of words and in languages and these codexes of meaning and understanding through our languages was something that was true about the universe. Almost as though, the way I interpret it is though the Heraclitus was saying that basically everything in the universe was like this language. There was a language of the cosmos and our manufacturing of our human languages were some type of tool that was able to take these packets of ideas, emotions, meaning, value, feeling, these intangible things that exist in our mind, and you could concretize them into understanding for other people through language. Now, uh, like I said, Plato kind of ran with this idea and started to create this idea of forms, this idea that there was this perfection in the universe. You know, some people have used the example, you know, there's the idea of something and there's the actual thing itself manifesting in the real universe. So, for example, you could have the idea of a chair. We have the idea of a chair and how to make a chair, how to construct one, what the chair, what a chair's purpose is for. And yet you could destroy all the chairs on earth and totally, you know, make a giant pyre and burn them all. And yet the idea of a chair would still exist. It would still be something that is tangible in the universe. And Plato would argue that the fact that there is the idea of the chair, wherever that exists in this divine transcendent realm of mind is more important than the physical manifestation of the chair. And you can think about this really like with anything. Uh, in my interpretation, I would actually say that this even goes for the divine mind that is uh, transcendent throughout nature or that some philosophers would say is present in nature. There's an idea of a human being somewhere in biology where the form comes from. The idea of uh, the triangle and the triangle, yes, is something that's uh, physically present in our universe. It's, uh, it's a shape that makes up the basic geometry of the universe, but somewhere in this transcendent realm of ideas, there's the idea of the triangle, and there is the idea of the perfect triangle that casts a shadow into the universe and then creates all these other forms um, that are kind of representations or symbolic manifestations of these perfect forms. So, you know, all of these people kind of uh, went around talking about this Logos, and even Aristotle went forward and he reasoned that the Logos was discourse and rhetorical understanding. I think Aristotle had a different conception of what Logos was, but he still thought it was the logic. It was the way of um, persuading an audience with reason, using facts and figures to convey the elements of mind into again, this understanding of language. I don't think Aristotle necessarily adopted the idea of Plato, that the Logos was this transcendent other thing that was penetrating reality. But um, yeah, you can kind of see there like what I was saying about how religions, then in Judaism, how, uh, how Philo of Alexandria, he used the term 
uh, logos to mean an, an intermediary divine being or a demiurge. Philo followed the platonic distinction between imperfect matter and perfect form, and therefore intermediary beings were necessary to bridge the enormous gap between God and the material world. The logos was the highest of the intermediary beings and was called by Philo the firstborn of God. Philo also wrote that the logos of the living God is the bond of everything, holding all things together and binding all the parts and prevents them from being dissolved and separated. Plato's theory of forms was located within the logos, but the logos also acted on the behalf of God in the physical world. And, uh, you know, Philo kind of interestingly thought of the logos as though that, you know, there's God in this transcendent realm beyond space-time, beyond the physical reality of, uh, of the universe. And yet he thought of the logos as this as an angel. He believed that that logic was present and it was acting on the behalf of on the behalf of God who is the manifestation of objective truth in the universe and that there was an angel of the Lord that he would talk about and that, that he identified that this was actually what was going on in the Old Testament and later Christian scholars would think of things like the burning bush and some of the and these miracles of the Old Testament Moses talking to you know the burning bush and Abraham and Isaac kind of having these angels interact with them that this was actually the logos because in uh, in theology what they would say is that in Christian theology anyway they say that you can't actually experience God before death and in terms of you can experience you can experience it but only through the logos and there's a concept called the noose and the noose is an idea that we are connected to this logos it's the the divine noose connects us up to this informative voice throughout reality that then links our spirit our soul our mind to the objective truth that is god or you know the the supreme reality of the universe behind the mechanics of the universe so yeah this is actually the way that most of these these monotheistic creation myths kind of take the idea of this truth being this truth that is god coming down in this creative nature and it actually uses the logos to create the world this is where you get a lot of that talk in the bible about the word in saint john's gospel he starts it off by saying you know there's that passage that goes in the beginning was the word and the word was with god and the word was god and what it's basically implying there is kind of like if you go back to heraclitus's idea of the logos being language and that language inherently knits together this logic you can think about it that way, that this this logos is the word. It's the actual language, the code of the universe that kind of... I like to think of it like it's a code that programs the universe. God is uh, the programmer writing this code into existence with his being and with his uh, divine mind. And then the world is manifest by the hand of the logos by it's it's the the tool by which god's essence then sculpts the entire world uh later on in time you then get some other people who start talking about the logos carl jung later on in the 20th century carl jung a great psychologist he's kind of the there's like freud and jung you hear about freud all the time and then jung is the one who kind of thought a lot about the unconscious um the world soul, the realm of archetypes, the ideas of synchronicity. Uh, so he kind of dealt with a more deep mystical understanding of what a human being is, kind of a different take than Freud, who kind of thought that human beings were all motivated by our sexual proclivities and preferences and the, the sex drive. So, you know, Carl Jung contrasted the critical and rational facilities of Logos with emotional and non-reason-oriented and, non and mythical elements of Eros. In Jung's approach, Logos versus Eros can be represented as science versus mysticism, or reason versus imagination, or conscious activity versus the unconscious. Uh, so this was actually, you know, kind of interesting, uh, this whole idea. You can see how it kind of permeates a lot of different traditions, a lot of different thought, even to the modern day. Even the Stoics had their own idea of the idea of logos. And the Stoic philosophy began with Zeno of Sidium. 
in 300 BC, in which Logos was the active reason pervading and animating the universe. It was conceived as material and is usually identified with God or nature. The Stoics also referred to the seminal Logos or the Logos Spermaticos, the law of generation in the universe which the principle was the principle of active reason working in inanimate matter. Humans, too, each possess a portion of the divine logos. So I'll kind of get into this idea also. I talked to you about, you know, the transcendent realm and then the idea of the logos being kind of the shadow of this transcendent realm that's sculpting all of matter and existence. And the noose which kind of holds us together it it holds our conscious and unconscious mind into this divine objective reality in and by this reality we're also to able to create language and manifest our ideas and manifest tools to then create you know everything art uh technology um everything culture all this stuff are kind of the manifestations of this idea of logos then like i was just saying it's interesting because then there's this idea of the noose linking us to the logos uh there's also this idea of what's called the logi and the logi are kind of agents of the logos they're things like um like truth and love and kind of these ethereal transcendent concepts that kind of give meaning to our lives that if they're followed they kind of uh initiate you into the greater logos um and your life can then be in flow with that and people like the stoics believed in this concept of the logos spermaticos which was the innate word or wisdom inside of us it was like the divine spark from the transcendent realm that uh it was like you know kind of the idea like there's a piece of the divine living each in each one of us because we're you know a fractal version of that divine thing that divine thing is manifesting itself throughout the universe and by the nature that we are kind of you know copied from that divine mind that divine center of of source of creation that then we have a piece a piece of that divine mind's code within us a barcode that kind of links us right back to the to the transcendent principles of the universe and this logos spermaticos can is fit together with the noose that connects us upward so it's not like you know um we just have this divine principle but inside of us, but we can't contact anything higher. No. Through the noose itself, we can contact the logos through finding the low guy within life, finding the things that give life meaning and are the right approaches through wisdom and understanding and knowledge to live a good life so you can be in in flow. Or, or running with the Tao. This is another kind of concept that is interesting is how Taoism, how, you know, there's a flow and state to reality, how you can move with the motions of the universe and with the cosmos in a way that is appropriate. There's an appropriate way of doing things to maximize the enjoyment, satisfaction, worthwhileness of life if you follow this flow so you know Tao can can be compared to logos in some sense uh there's definitely some overlap there they're not they don't i don't think they totally overlap um completely but i think in eastern philosophy Tao is probably the the biggest parallel to logos so, you know, then uh, people like Justin Martyr also came up with this idea and refined this idea of Logos Spermaticos. And yeah, you can see how this idea has survived throughout time, how it is very important to Western philosophy. I would say it's one of, if not the most important, it's definitely up there with like the top like three most important ideas of Western philosophy and is one of the oldest that comes from, you know, all the way back down to the Greeks, you know, through the Romans, enters into the Middle East, into Islamic philosophy. They had their own idea of it. This idea also permeates uh, hermeticism. Like I mentioned earlier, there was even the idea that this thing was a demiurge and the hermetics believed in these concepts like demiurge. To them, though, the demiurge would be something that wasn't really good. It wasn't something, the demiurge for them was just something to to escape. They kind of thought that the logos or the demiurge of life, 
the thing that creates the material world for the, for those practicing hermeticism would probably not be a good thing because their whole idea was that matter and nature were something evil because it trapped the light. It trapped uh, the divine light within matter and led it into a world of, you know, pain, suffering and struggle. And that the whole purpose of the universe was to try to get back out of matter and back into the divine transcendence of the universe where, you know, eternal bliss was actually residing in truth and goodness. So, uh, you know, but it's still an idea that is meaningful to people practicing hermeticism. It's also been a, a large idea in magic as well. You have uh, people like the OTO, the AA, uh, the Golden Dawn, people like Aleister Crowley, all these kind of mystics of the of the latter part of uh, the last couple hundred years have who have practiced magic and ceremonial and ritual magic kind of talk about this idea as well i've heard it described in thelema and in oto talks that the purpose of magic is to and ceremonial ritual is to make yourself into like a semiconductor of the logos you're trying to make your mind your soul your spirit your body and these rituals and incantations and manifestations and invocations it's almost like you're trying to make your form be a microcosm of a form that would transmute this energy properly from the divine realm from the realm of imagination uh, down into the physical world and your body is that that intermediary like what i was talking about earlier this uh, intermediary between divine and materia so this idea you know like i said very important very interesting idea it's uh, like i said it's one of my favorite ideas in philosophy and honestly, I think that for me personally, this idea has kind of shaped my worldview since I heard about it. It's been a very, very pervading, attractive idea for my conception of what is happening in the world and in reality. Now, I'm a person, I'm spiritual, I'm not, I'm, I'm not very religious, I don't adhere to any dogma, but... I would say I'm definitely not an orthodox person or anything like that, but I definitely think that there is something in the universe. There is an objective, true reality behind the cosmos. I think that there's something that is, yes, animating the cosmos and giving everything some inherent spirit, that that the, the artistic motions of the universe and of nature and honestly the presence of us here is some type of indicator that there is some higher order thing going on the fact that all this logic and information and creativity is concressing itself and it's being manifest in the human body and it's being manifest in the human mind and our mind and body union is able to create so much interesting complexity and you know novelty like what we were talking about in our last video you know all the novelty compressing on this planet through us i think it it is indic indicative of a process going on that is the logos is something or something like the logos there's something true about that idea in my opinion of logos of the idea that logic is pervasive and that logic and understanding is something that is a quality of our universe even even you know thinking about something even like mathematics for a moment mathematics to me and you see it all throughout the universe our entire universe is some type of runs on some type of mathematical language from you know the patterns on a peacock's feathers to the way that coral grows to the placement of leaves on a tree and how they kind of use you know uh, fibonacci sequences to grow upward and spiral up in directions that will give them maximum uh, potential for gaining sunlight on their leaves <laughs> hell you see the fibonacci sequence everywhere it's uh, on the top of your head in the form of the cowlick you know your your fingerprints kind of are in that same swirled position seashells all this stuff they uh you know planets are inherently round there's a logic to 
there's a logic to a lot of it. You know, it's it. There's everything has this fractal. There's this Mandel broth fractal uh, reality kind of going on through the universe. There's not one planet that's you know a triangle and or a pyramid. And then another one is, you know, hexagonal, and then the other one is an oblong, and another one is some form of Euclidean geometry, and then Earth is round. No, it's like, you know, all the planets are basically round, spherical objects. Not totally perfectly round, some of them, I think it's a little bit more uh, oval, you know, <laughs> in, in, uh, if we're going to be technical about it. But um, you don't you don't see this weird cartoonish universe that is unable to be apprehended rationally apprehended because it doesn't work on rules of some type of logic and perhaps there's types of logic i mean there's things that we don't understand out there but perhaps there's type of there's forms of logic forms of understanding that are still out of our scope of understanding there's a million and one things that we don't understand there will always be more things that we don't understand but i think the fact that you can get equations out of the universe you know the schrodinger equation the conservation of energy equals equals mc square you know these beautiful mathematical equations work from the minds of monkeys to the dynamics of the cosmos math is you know something that is kind of objective about our universe it it works at least locally for what we understand mathematics seem to seems to be a pervasive way of understanding the universe through logic and reason and deduction I also think um, one of the, the the reasons why I have kind of taken this up as what I, I would say is my philosophical worldview is uh, also built on other forms of Greek philosophy because I do consider myself some type of Platonist. There's, there's definite problems with traditional Platonism that I don't think all of it can truly map out what's going on in the world, but there's inklings of truth within it, uh, specifically in, you know, the idea of forms and where forms come from and this realm of, of ideas that exist past reality um, in some transcendent realm that we're not truly aware of or consciously aware of. But, you know, I also love the idea of the good, the true, and the beautiful. Th this idea is kind of in a big staple throughout Greek philosophy. Uh, the idea kind of surmises that it's hard to know what is true about the universe. But if you objectively start from a place where you look at the universe and you can see what is beautiful, if you follow that line of beauty, you can find something that's good about the universe. And if you followed something that's good about the universe, eventually you can find something that is true about the universe. And you kind of, I guess, go into the realm of wisdom and understanding. And I think this holds true. I think, you know, things like the presence of beauty, the presence of goodness and wisdom are kind of indicators that this logos thing is is somewhere inside of reality that there is this stream of logic that is compressing the beauty around itself i think it's the reason why you look at the world and i mean everything is so gorgeous i mean just about everything if you step into step into any forest and some, you know, no matter what it is, step into any forest, the rainforest, the the redwoods, you know, um, the some plains, you know, whatever, the Arctic Circle. And you can stand in the natural world and just see, wow, there's so much beauty. You look at the night sky, it's inherently beautiful. I, there's, you know, there's no obvious reason to why the world has to be beautiful. I mean, sure, not everything is inherently beautiful. I, I would actually venture to say that a lot of the things that uh, mankind creates are inherently much less beautiful than what nature creates. But I mean, then again, you know, you look at a and I guess this is subjective as well. You look under a rock and you see a bunch of worms. Maybe that's not going to be the most beautiful thing or a nest of spiders if you are not into spiders or something like that. Or, you know, um, something that's dead and, and die. you know, is when you see roadkill or something like that or something that an animal has attacked and killed. It's, you know, generally not that pretty. But I mean, there's still, you can kind of still get a conception, I think, about, you know, even things like death and uh, decay, that it's a part of, you know, some process in the universe, the 
when an animal kills another animal, okay, well, you know, it's a sad thing that happens, but one animal has gotten to eat and nothing is getting wasted. It's giving life to something else. When you, you know, if if a tree dies in the forest and becomes rotten, at least it's giving back. And, you know, the plants around it in the forest at large, the mushrooms, the soil, the other plants, bugs will definitely benefit from that tree's death in some way. It, It gives back. So it's a cycle. So there's something, even though aesthetically it may not be the most pretty thing there's something true about it there's something good that then creates something true you know it's a something objective about life you then learn about you know oh the cycle of life and how death creates life and you know one thing leads to the other so that goodness that can maybe not be found aesthetically in something that's i mean there's a whole argument you could have also to a grotesque art and all that kind of stuff so it's really a subjective but uh yeah whether it's literature nature art painting sculpture music you can you can kind of find that line of beauty in most things and then draw that same line all the way up to the good all the way up to the true and that's kind of why it's my favorite idea now i also i also believe that and this kind of merges with uh, McKenna's idea in the last video of the transcendental object at the end of time. And also, by the way, McKenna did also speak of this idea. So if you like that video, this is kind of another footnote in uh, McKenna where, uh, you know, he, he described it as many other people did as a voice of the voice in your head. The thing that, you know, the, the observer, I guess, of you, you know, this thing that would come and give you wisdom and ideas. And in the ancient world, people would listen to this voice in the head and kind of, you know, they would think, where does that voice come from? And they would think, oh, my God, it's it's the gods telling me to do things. Oh, my, the gods are telling me to stay away from danger or to run or whatever. And um, he kind of thought of this idea, too, like this was the logo speaking to people, the spirit of logic itself. He also had the idea that in psychedelics, that the visions of psychedelics, the visions that came pouring through your mind, were connected to the divine realm of ideas. And that they were such beautiful transcendent images that, you know, when you're on heavy doses of psychedelics, that you get these beautiful geometric strange, uh, fractal, you know, infinitely beautiful, some of Niagara's of, of beauty pouring through your mind. It was because that you were kind of elevating your mental frequency to interact with this logos, that it was giving you tr- images of truth that could convey images of good and beauty. Um, so, you know, that's kind of a footnote right there for him as well. Also, he kind of explained how Philo of Alexandria offered the idea of the more perfect logos. So if the logos is language itself, uh, Philo kind of, um, I think he was asked the question of what is the more perfect logos? And if the logos is language, if it's communication, if it's um, understanding, then instead of a logos that is heard, the more perfect logos would be a logos that is seen, something that it conveys itself through through vision and through the visual apparatus, something that can be understood. Like uh, McKenna used to like to talk about about how octopuses kind of were embodying this idea that when you look at them and they change color, it's not actually for camouflage that they're actually embodying what's on their mind. You know, you can see a wealth of an, one octopus can another to another can see a wealth of information kind of a story that that other octopus is telling about you know the last time it ate if it wants to mate if uh it's aggravated stressed out whatever the case may be so you know he kind of thought that if we could enter a domain where we could see each other's minds we could truly convey what each other what each other meant that we would actually understand each other because we would no longer just be hearing what the interpretation through these words which were uh, little packets of language that dispersed meaning and that your internal dictionary has to line up with someone else's internal dictionary and for you to understand each other because it generates a picture of understanding in the other person's mind but that if we could only see what each other mean then it would we could understand each other and in essence we could be each other because we would the the line of um the line that separates us the line of mind of kind of this abyss of uh, not understanding from one person to the next would kind of be broken and then you would it would be superseded 
So, you know, this is the other reason why he kind of thought that the psychedelic visions were kind of this logos coming through and trying to manifest language and alter language in a way that would make it would make it uh, cross that line of transition from speech to to something visual. This is also kind of what I think about art as well. I think that art embodies something about the logos, everything that's designed embodies something about the logos because it comes from the mind. It comes from this place of your ideas and understanding. And what really is art besides a way to peek into somebody's mind? The What an artist is doing is that he's using his body as a tool to interpret the images of mind, something that is that is intangible, that comes from this separate realm of ideas. So yeah, that's kind of what I think is, you know, is coming through and is coming through is this logos in all things. I think we are, for whatever reason, we've evolved to a point where we're picking up on this transcendent element about reality. Something outside of matter is calling us to do something. It's uh, like I've talked about in my other videos about the, oppor- the, the, the opportunity that humanity represents is the opportunity for wisdom and knowledge and the universe unfolding itself to an eye that can understand it and manifest a greater, more perfect version of the universe of, you know, what it like. It's, it's like if we can touch the universe with our logic, you know, if we can bring technology into this world and art that will make the universe a more comfortable and beautiful place then we're kind of doing the work of the logos our hands will become the hands that then tweak the universe to be something that logic has touched something we can birth new dimensions of ideas new 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 places new things new we we make things in this universe that have never existed before Every time we create, we, in essence, take something, we, we take like a, a ladle in the river or the ocean of mind and we pour it into the material world and then that thing becomes manifest. And in some sense, I believe this is what our functioning is. Our function is to manipulate energy and matter and manipulate the world into something that makes a better existence for all of us and for all the beings around us. So, you know, I believe that, you know, when we contemplate our minds and we create things and instead of, you know, and this is also another idea where, you know, to create instead of consume, that is something of logos to actually add yourself into the world. You know, you matter, your ideas matter, you know, refine your ideas, make sure that your mind is something worth sharing with the rest of the world, that your, your art skills and talents, uniqueness, your, your divine beautiful spark is something that comes out and is made manifest to others that you can show others. And I think that, you know, kind of finding a way to do this, to find your true will, the, the, those in uh, Thelema and in magical, ceremonial magical circles talk about this idea of enacting your true will. And they talk about that as something that you do. That's something that you find. It doesn't, it, they, Alistair Crowley used to say, do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. And that's not a call to do just whatever you want. That's a call to say, what is your will? What is your purpose here on this planet? Why, why is your life manifesting? And in, in those circles, they believe you wouldn't be manifesting here if there wasn't something that only you could do. So I think that this idea of logos, logos spermaticos inside of you, a transcendent seed inside of you that can grow up and then penetrate the world to, to change it for the better. That's the purpose of life for each individual. And then if enough of us can do that, it creates epochs of, of history. And that history follows that creative motion. That when a lot of people get together and have great ideas and enact those ideas in the world in a way that causes harmony, then you're flowing with the Tao. Then you're flowing with the Logos. The Logos is pouring through mind and it creates happiness and contentment and fulfillment. 
because we understand, we have wisdom about what our life purpose is. There's not a nihilistic depression about what life is about because, oh, I don't know what I'm doing with my life. I'm so confused. I'm so misunderstood. I, I, I hate life. It's all, it's all so confusing and terrible. The opposite of logos is confusion and nihilism. And, you know, I'm not, you know, you don't have to believe in this idea of, you know, Christianity or the Tao or anything like that. It's, it's about the fact that these ideas, these metaphors hold true. It doesn't mean you have to believe that, you know, oh my God, you know, I can't get on board with this idea because, you know, they're saying that uh, the Christians say that Christ is the Logos. He's the incarnation of truth from, you know, the transcendent all father. Therefore, uh, I'm not going to believe in somebody that resurrected and died and died and resurrected rather. Um, you know, it doesn't mean you have to believe that. What I'm, What's interesting to me is that I think that the Logos and a lot of theologians and philosophers would agree with this idea is that the Logos has been coming through throughout time. That it started from the beginning of history and you know the beginning of life on the or not even life it's it's the beginning of the cosmos really but it's been it's been metaphorically telling its story it's been metaphorically trying to get to us and contacting us through idea and myth and narrative and religion and spirituality and really all these all these stories that we tell about ourselves are in some way this uh story of logos so i feel like you know the greeks started talking about this idea and they kind of defined this idea of logic and reason and it's kind of just been redefining itself into a more understandable way for the people that hear the story so i think you know it's kind of interesting because i even thought about this you know the church and christianity are also you know with their roots in judaism and then later you know um islam comes out of these traditions also Science is essentially born from Christianity. I'm not saying that all science, not all empirical things, but, you know, the Enlightenment itself. Let's say the Enlightenment is the scientific revolution kind of comes from these these circles of Christianity. And, you know, the, the church propagated a lot of this knowledge and a lot. I mean, this is why you see a lot of priests and scholars of the church, you know, figuring a lot of things out and that they're, you know, different chemists and, you know, scientists. And they go out there and look at the world and try to understand the world. And, um, you know, even in a lot of circles to be a priest, you have to have a backbone based in natural sciences. Obviously, the church had a monopoly on knowledge for a really long time. They misused and abused that power, obviously. But in my opinion, I think that the fact that the Logos idea was kind of taken in Christianity, uh, molded from, you know, the Greek philosophies, found itself in Judaism. It's almost like the, like this, this, uh, the singularity of logic and Christianity in the higher echelons birthed the scientific revolution and the enlightenment. And then later on, you know, uh, obviously people like, like later on Darwin tries to get away from the church for very obvious reasons, very obvious reasons. I mean, you know, people like Galileo will tell you that the church is very hostile, was very hostile to people who did not agree with them. And it, they were very prideful in having a monopoly on all this knowledge and having their brand on knowledge to keep a lot of people away from it. But once the Enlightenment forced people to break away and the church lost all of that political control, in essence, it's almost like the Logos came back full force. And then all this knowledge and understanding has poured out in the last three to four hundred years. And now we're at the, you know, the precipice of all this digital technology, medical technology, uh, space, space associated technology, space flight, understanding physics comes out of this, the standard model, all of this stuff. So and in my opinion, this is why it's so important not to and I say this to science also not to get dogmatic and believe you have all the answers or think that your way is the only way or whatever because i think that this is uh the as la as logic and the logos understand itself and keep self-reflecting through us through our intuition through our minds it's almost like you know the logos is a massive mirror reflecting truth into the world the light of truth comes through this this pane of glass and the pane of glass is like a two-way mirror 
And in essence, we are mirrors of that logos as well. So we ref- we get this light and reflect it back. It reflects it back to us. And con- and it continues to better understand itself. And we better continue to better understand ourselves because we are all pieces of this one truth. This one truth about reality, about the multiple hyperdimensional layers of the cosmos that exist, that's pouring itself out into the universe. And the more that we refined our tools of understanding, the more we refine our methods. And right now, we are in a place where science is the greatest method to that has ever come. You know, it's 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 not the it's not the the perfect method, in my opinion, it still can't tell us things like what what love is or what the experience of the color red is or, you know, human experience. But it's the best tool for understanding material reality at the moment. And that comes from, you know, a, a wealth, a wealth of history vested in theology and philosophy and thought. If you kind of think about it here, it is thinking, it is thinking about our situation in the world that creates this logic. You know, it started all when, you know, the first human being, you know, thought about what am, what is this, you know, looking at the world around them, how does this work, you know, and creating ancient shamanism and spirituality and uh, religions and then philosophy and, you know, art, architecture, uh, you know, all of this stuff, all of this stuff, technology, you know, then that sprawls into things like mathematics and um, later, you know, things like science and, you know, all the offshoots of that biology, astronomy, everything, everything. It is, it is the fact, the facility of thinking that is the superpower of man. And it will continue to redefine itself throughout the ages. And maybe for, maybe right now, the study of the material world and of science is the best way to cut through reality. I think that, you know, obviously philosophy is still hugely important, hugely important. I don't think science will ever discover the meaning of life. I don't think that's the object of science because it can't, it's not dealing with things that are objective experience and um, objective and obje- of, and subjective experience of, of us. I don't think it can answer those questions. It's but one tool in the toolkit, you know, sitting right beside philosophy, right beside theology, right beside all these other practices and teachings of the non-physical <laughs> that we can understand the world better. It's a multifaceted crystal. Our understanding, our mind is, you know, an infinitely faceted crystal. And each face of that crystal is a different surface that exalts the the light of truth of something, whether it be the material world, the non-physical world, the mind, the heart, the dimensions of spirit, you know, uh, all of these things inside of us. And this is how we come to what is true. We're figuring out slowly but surely what is more true and more true about the universe. And I, I believe it was Heidegger who said that we need models of life that are true enough, true enough. Truth is very hard to seed on. And, you know, it's something very hard to seize. But, if you have a model that that is true enough that it creates net good and understanding uh, of the world, then that's good enough. Uh, I've talked about before. I'm not entirely sure, you know, uh, and other thinkers have not been entirely sure if truth is something that can be totally rationally apprehended to human beings. Base truth of what reality is. Our brain may just not have enough uh, enough CPU power, essentially, to truly understand the the way that th- that truth works. This is why so many things are kind. That's why you know truth is not something that's also um, concrete. Sometimes, sometimes there's different types of truth, and that kind of to me implies that we don't have an actual way to knit together the web of truth in a cohesive picture at the moment. Maybe that'll come with time. Maybe that'll come with technology. Maybe that'll come with, you know, artificial intelligence and all that stuff. And, um, you know, bigger CPU power to create bigger models of the universe. And hopefully we can get these bigger pictures of truth. But yeah, essentially, 
I think that, uh, and it's funny, touching on the topic, and it seems like I talk about it every time, and honestly, you're going to hear about it a lot. These words will leave my mouth a lot. Uh, artificial intelligence. This, Even this, to me, is a concretization of the logos. Uh, the fact that we create tools of higher understanding and are about to give birth to other forms of consciousness that will then be super general, you know, general, super general intelligence will be just another tool in our toolbox, another, another form by which the Logos' shadow comes through reality and makes its way up the ladder of matter to look back over the wall of reality into the truth so it's it's funny because the way i kind of see it sometimes is that as as the universe was created from a perfect transcendence it got it's like a it's like a child getting up and trying to understand itself and realizing has different ways different talents and skills and the all the things in the universe from you know atoms being created and particles and then stars and all this uh you know and then all the way up to us it's kind of like the progression of this truth gaining a form in this reality and then one day it's seeking maybe union, I don't know, with its transcendence, with the truth. And maybe this universe will become a part of the truth. And then maybe something else will be born out of that. Maybe we exist in a place where there's infinite dimensions. And each dimension has to figure their way back through truth. Through through the process of struggle and hardship and suffering and limitation and restriction so that then it builds and manufactures a way to re-understand and rediscover itself and unites with that transcendent understanding i don't know i don't know kind of just an idea i play with but um yeah uh that's kind of all i wanted to say today uh i'm really glad that you guys stuck through this one yeah thank you so much for listening this was actually really fun to talk about it's a it's an idea i've kind of had in my head and i'm really glad that now i get to tell you guys about it i'm always bugging my friends with this idea uh so i kind of think you know it was uh it was great to talk about it was great to go through a little bit of philosophy and history and theology with you guys and Please give me feedback about this idea. Tell me what you guys think. Do you agree with me? Do you disagree with my worldview? You know, you can, uh, if you want to drop me a DM on Instagram, uh, you can find me at Talk Alchemy on Instagram. You can also find me on Twitter at the same handle, Talk Alchemy. You can email me at talkalchemy at gmail.com. Any of these things, you know, just, uh, yeah, tell me what you guys think. Did you like this video? Did you like this idea? Would you like to hear more about this? I can expand this as well. I Maybe I could even bring somebody on who knows more about this topic. Yeah, so thanks for sticking through the video. Thanks for being here with me. It's always awesome to have you listening. And until next time, uh, I'll see you guys soon. Have a great day. Have a great night whenever time you're listening to this. I love you guys for listening. Thank you so, so much. And, you know, I'll talk to you guys next time. Stay well, stay weird, stay safe. I'll be seeing you guys soon. This has been uh, Tyler with Talk Alchemy. And until next time, bye guys.